Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Uh, today is August 26, 2016, and uh, my name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, uh, we have Doug, uh, Tiffany, and Gabby. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. We'd like to welcome Gabby back after hiatus. Yay. It's really great to have you back. Welcome back. It's good to be here. <laughs> So uh, today we are going to be talking about uh, greatest hits, our greatest hits, not to be ostentatious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about some of the previously covered topics that we've done, uh, just give some updates, um, talking about uh, supplements, which are back in the news, but not in a good way, <laughs> uh, talking about some uh, resurgence of some diseases in the UK. <clears throat> some like kind of scary old diseases that appear to be coming back. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, gluten, uh, the Zika scare uh, that popped up a number of, and a, a few other things. So let's start. I think uh, today we have a clip uh, regarding the supplements being in the news. Uh, and uh, Tiffany, do you want to introduce this? Yeah, this is from the CBS This Morning show. And it's uh, talking about dangerous ingredients found in dietary supplements. So it's basically just a lot of propaganda and scare tactics. But here we go. A new investigation just out this morning may have you rethinking some of your vitamins. Consumer Reports find certain ingredients in dietary supplements sold around the country can carry major health risk. Sales have reportedly soared 81% in the past decade. The industry grosses $40 billion a year, but more than 23,000 people a year are estimated to end up in emergency rooms. Symptoms include heart palpitations, allergic reactions, and chest pain. Dana Jacobson looks at the dangers of a virtually unregulated yet growing industry. If it can kill someone like Logan, it, can, it has no borders, and it will kill again. 18-year-old Logan Steiner died after overdosing on a caffeine powder supplement he bought online. It's what you don't know. I think that's, that's the thing that we're most concerned about. The other thing Lisa Gill is deputy content editor at Consumer Reports. Their new study outlined health risks associated with dietary supplements, including vitamins, probiotics, and weight loss aids. What's the biggest misconception then about supplements? Oh, that they're safe. A manufacturer doesn't have to prove to the FDA before it gets put on the shelves that what's in those tablets is what they say is there. Unlike drug products that must be proven safe and effective, dietary supplements do not have to go through FDA approval. Gill says it leaves the consumer a, at risk. Claim. It could be adulterated, it could be counterfeit, it could be hiding prescription drugs. Consumer Reports worked with independent doctors and dietary experts to identify 15 ingredients they say consumers should always avoid. They include caffeine powder found in some weight loss supplements, kava claiming to reduce anxiety, and red yeast rice in supplements claiming to reduce cholesterol. Why avoid these 15 ingredients that you say to always avoid? Right, a couple things. They are known to have very specific harms. In some cases, they can cause seizures or they can cause liver or kidney damage. There have been deaths associated with each of these. But they found all 15 ingredients available in supplements online or in major retailers. Council for Responsible Nutrition, who represents the supplement industry, responded in a statement. More than 150 million Americans take dietary supplements each year. Overwhelmingly, dietary supplements are safe and play a valuable role in helping Americans live healthy lifestyles. 
But Dr. Peter Cohen, an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, disagrees. Consumers need to know that they cannot trust that anything sold as a supplement is what's actually listed on the label, nor that it works, or that it's safe. The FDA acknowledged its limited role in regulating the industry, saying it's important to remind consumers that just because you can buy supplements in stores doesn't mean the FDA has reviewed them for safety or efficacy. Gill recommends consumers look for the United States Pharmacopeia or USP label and consult a medical expert. Tell your doctor and your pharmacist what you're taking. Treat it like medication. It's, it's that important. It's really about your health. For CBS This Morning, Dana Jacobson, New York. Oh, what a load of psychopathic propaganda. (laughs) 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 Oh, my God. That's uh... so many holes in that. Yeah, where do you even start with that? Well, notice how when they uh, talked about supplements, they gave like one little statement from a pro supplement company that said that supplements are safe. And then they give, you know, voice time and FaceTime on the video. If you watch the video from a doctor who says, oh, no, they're absolutely not safe. (laughs) It's so manipulative. It really is. And the fact that they they attribute all those... um, trips to the hospital from sub, from taking supplements, it, it, it's so easy to skew those things. I mean, we already see in there, of the 15 um, different ingredients they say you should always avoid, I think they mentioned, what, three? Yeah. And one of them was caffeine. Okay, yeah. how can you group in caffeine with other dietary supplements? I mean, it's a stimulant. It's not it's a vitamin. Not the same thing. No, exactly. it's not a vitamin. It's not, it's not an herb. It's not a vitamin. It's like these, you know, it, to group that in with the other things is such, like, you know, it's like, you, you can kind of take all these people who had to go to the hospital from taking things like weight loss supplements and caffeine and all these other crappy things and just apply it to the umbrella term supplement and suddenly every vitamin that's out there is dangerous. It's, yeah. oh my God, it's so aggravating. I'll give, I'll give an example that I took from the Mercola website. You know, they, the, he says, he reports, the, the consumer report story opens with a tragic and horrible description of a premature infant given a probiotics that was contaminated with a fungus and killed the child. Mm-hmm. So according to the supplement company, which is Solgar, you know, uh, they, co- they cooperated fully with the FDA investigation and the CDC investigation. And uh, they inspected the numerous facilities and equipment, and, the, and equipment used by Solgar and they failed to reveal any contaminants at any Mm -hmm. point in its supply chain. And as noted by consumer reports, the company said the only contaminated samples found were those delivered to the FDA by the Yale Yale, Yale, New Haven Hospital Pharmacy. Mm -hmm. And what the article fails to note is that the fungal infections are pretty much ubiquitous in hospital settings and per dangerous, actually. Um, fungal outbreaks have been traced back to linens, bandages, tongue depressors in hospitals. And uh, it's a high-risk group for fungal infections, people that are in the intensive care unit or in hospitals, hospital setting. Hmm. So, so basically no- the sample got <laughs> contaminated or they just blamed the supplements for the contamination that was likely. already in the hospital. In, in the hospital, exactly. So <laughs> even the examples yeah. they used to... To bad mouth supplements, it's just like traces back to them, you know, it's just like crazy. 
Yeah, yeah and they totally ignore so, the fact that FDA approval does not mean that drugs are safe because how many no. people die of taking their drugs exactly the way they are prescribed? Is it like over 100,000 people a year die from FDA-approved yeah. prescription drugs? Yeah. Yes, and guess what? Tylenol, you know, alone kills nearly 500 people annually. I think this is only in the United States. And ironically, which is the antidote for Tylenol poisoning? Does somebody knows? No. It's N-acetylcysteine, NAC. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's the antidote for Tylenol poisoning, you know? Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, Doug, yeah, I think you nailed it when you said that they were, you know, lumping everything in with uh, vitamins or just kind of throwing that on the list. It's like... You know, heroin, cocaine, meth, and uh, vitamins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All those supplements are so dangerous. And they yeah, try to it's a, uh, play it off like the FDA is like so powerless to regulate supplements. Like there's just a bunch of rogue supplement you know, manufacturers out there. But the supplement industry is regulated by the FDA, <laughs> and the FDA can pull any product off the shelf that they want mm-hmm. to at any time that they yeah. want to. Yeah. Exactly, and the other, and the other. I think the the main point here is like, well, who would trust the FDA anyway? I mean, it's such a corrupt organization. Like honestly, like like look at all the pharmaceutical drugs that they approve and how many deaths they're causing. Why would you look at that organization as something that could be trusted in any way? Like they are so corrupt. Oh. You know, one of the yeah. panel experts of Consumer Report, it's the guy whose surname is Offit. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's actually on the board of trustees of one of the worst front groups of all times, the American Council of Science and Health. Mm-hmm. And um, he actually is one of the rep- responsible guys from contamination issues flagging uh, his vaccine, which is the road to virus vaccine which was suspended in 2010 because of DNA contamination with virus lethal to peaks, you know. Yeah, I thought I recognized that name. That's one of those vaccine hairs, Paul Offit. (laughs) So this is one of the guys behind the, you know, this panel of experts, you know, (laughs) bath-mouthing supplements, you know. Mm. (sighs) Actually, regarding the FDA thing, one of our chatters, uh, as a matter of fact, I had a doctor prescribe me a medicine that he said was the quote-unquote least evil of all that he used. <laughs> oh, That's not a very ringing endorsement. <laughs> least <laughs> evil? <laughs> God. Well, That's a very good way to put it. You read the adverse effects on each drug. Yes. It's like yeah. nobody would take them. But where's the adverse list for supplements, you know? I mean, I think, you know, there's an important distinction to make. I mean, with anything, you have to have the whole buyer beware thing in in mind. I mean, you have to take a look at the supplement company that's doing it. Are they trustworthy? Like all those different kinds of things. There have certainly been um, scandals that have rocked the industry where, you know, the, the, the company says there's a certain ingredient in there and it's not actually in there. So, I mean, obviously, like, you know, you can't just kind of blanket the whole thing and say, no, all supplements are safe. You, you, you have to look at individual cases, obviously. But that being said, there have been, as of 2014, there was zero deaths reported from from taking supplements. Mm-hmm. How many were there for big pharma drugs? Oh. 
Yeah, many ten, well, tens of thousands. Yeah, hundreds of thousands, I think. Yeah, yeah. hundreds of thousands <laughs> every year, without fail, continuously. Yeah. And, and this is underestimated because people take more drugs now. <laughs> mm-hmm. so. Yeah, yeah. I think common sense needs to come into play here too. I mean, the the uh, the people in this clip, and I think the people that are generally disparaging, you know, supplements. If you want to broad blanket it. Um, <clears throat> are people who trust the FDA. They trust their doctor and they don't do their own research. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so sure, if, if somebody who has that mindset is going to say, well, I need some energy, I'm just going to look up and order whatever says this will mm-hmm. give you energy. And, you know, they mm-hmm. end up taking those, like hornet pills that you can get at the gas station, which are yeah. essentially. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, they might be the same people who are supplementing with Red Bull and ephedrine to lose weight. Yeah. 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 And the supplements get blamed, right? Exactly. I mean, in and of itself, it's not that surprising to me that a kid would would overdose on uh, caffeine pills. Mm -hmm. That could Mm -hmm. totally happen. But, you know, using it as a a straw man to, um, you know, to to disparage the entire idea of taking natural Mm -hmm. substances – is total BS. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that's not to say like everybody needs to do their research. If you're going to take something that you don't know about, you shouldn't do that. You should look it up. You should do research. You should make sure um, because some natural things can be dangerous in in large doses. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. <clears throat> so it's like cocaine. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think <laughs> that really. Sorry, go ahead, Jonathan. Oh, I was just going to say, like, my own experience with uh, oregano oil. Oregano oil is really powerful, totally natural. You can get it anywhere. But if you take too much of it, you will kill off all of your gut flora and be depressed for, like, a month, mm-hmm. you know. So there are, you know, it's it's about having common sense and, and doing proper research before you try something. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is actually, if you really look at it, that's kind of what's under attack here is that people – at this state stage kind of have the ability to do their research, to find out what they need, to try and do different supplementation to try to address their issues. Um, and that's kind of what's, what's being attacked because it's a very different um, approach to kind of the medical model where it's just, uh, my doctor wrote me a script. I don't even know what it says. I go and I get the pills and I take them. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the authoritarian versus somebody who's kind of a little bit more self-determined and, and trying to kind of get down to their own issues it's almost like that i mean because uh, let's be honest like the fda it's not about safety it's obviously not about safety but they use that kind of as a tool to uh kind of force the public you know put this fear onto the public so that they'll distrust these these supplements and and distrust the idea that they can maybe take this into their own hands and to you know take their health into their own hands Mm -hmm. so it's it's kind of like put fear into the idea of being kind of self-determined and, you know, support the idea that you need to have some sort of authority telling you what you need to do. Yes, that FDA, you know, and the behavior of several, you know, experts, you know, it's uh, pretty psychopathic. You know, I was reading it, it just tried me, wow, this is like a case study of psychopathy. They don't even miss any single trait of the checklist to diagnose psychopathy. It's overrepresented. <laughs> And mm. that type of awareness, like the public thinking that, oh, the FDA has the best intentions and uh, mm-hmm. they're surely looking after us. And the fact, you know, that gap of awareness speaks of, you know, trouble mm-hmm. for the public. 
This reminds me, too, of the people who, uh, I should look this up, I don't remember exactly, but there was a story about people who got shut down for giving out food to homeless people because, oh, yeah. you know, they weren't properly per, uh, permitted. They didn't have the permits to do it. And <clears throat> that's just an exercise in authoritarianism. It's like you don't care about the health of homeless people. You know, it's just about, oh, somebody's breaking this rule. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it's that that reminds me, it's a similar feel to this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, like they said in that clip that the the FDA just seems so powerless to regulate this evil supplement industry. They actually passed new guidelines that the supplements are going to have even more stringent oversight than pharmaceutical (laughs) drugs. They passed this on August the 11th of this year. So we all know who that's going to benefit, and their name is Big Pharma. (laughs) (laughs) They they are like psychopaths, literally. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think this policy is going to have a result, not unlike what is happening already in Spain for a number of years. That is, if this policy is approved, supplements will become much more expensive than mm-hmm. pharmaceutical drugs, mm-hmm. and they will be only available by prescription, you know, so to speak. Oh my god. Um, in, in Spain, um, supplements are significant, uh, are much more expensive than pharmaceutical drugs. So people mm. even, they have some vague awareness that taking a supplement might help me. They leave it as the last option because, you know, for economic constraints or whatever reason, they prefer the easiest option, the cheapest mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the result has been that Spain now has the worldwide record for consumption of psychotropic drugs, uh, pharmaceutical, I mean, not even the United States, you know, it is Spain, actually, who who consumes more anti-anxiety drugs, more antidepressive drugs, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, yes, go ahead. (laughs) I was just going to say that um, there was an article up on SOD about these new FDA guidelines, uh, called Tightening the Noose, the FDA revises guidelines on dietary supplements to benefit big pharma. And I think it is exactly, I mean, it's all in the title right there. That's basically mm-hmm. exactly what it is. Apparently, these new regulations are going to require that anybody introducing a new supplement uh, sets aside massive uh, amounts of money to be able to test it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that, like to the, the um, to kind of meet these uh, these new FDA guidelines. And the author um, basically said that uh, it, it requires, um, you know, a small supplement company would have to set aside 20 years of profits in order to um, meet these guidelines. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if, you know, what's going to happen then? Obviously, these companies aren't going to be able to do that. Yeah, They're going like, to go out of business. They're going to, if they can even start their business in the first place. So it's just, it's it's ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah, that's like the, uh, the story of uh, Brzezinski, the cancer doctor who exactly. uh, had a specific uh, cure that he had found. And uh, to get into human testing trials, I think he had to pony up like $10 million for phase mm-hmm. one. Hmm. And there's like four or five phases, you know. Jeez. That's like the equivalent of Clinton's pay-to-play foundation. <laughs> like you have to pay-to-play yeah. in order to get in with the FDA. And like these small companies, they're mm-hmm. not going to be able to do that. The larger ones, it's just a drop in the bucket for them. They're, that's the cost of business. But, you know, like you yeah. said, Doug, a lot of these small companies that probably have a good product and are trustworthy, they're going to be, like, thrown out. It's like mafia tactics, really. 
Exactly. Yeah. And the, the thing is that a lot, what a lot of people don't know is that a lot of the supplement companies out there are actually owned by pharmaceutical companies. Mm. Um, the supplements, a lot of times, the, the generally what you see is a, a supplement company is a small company. They start up, they have a very good uh, product. They start taking more and more of the, um, of the market and then they get bought up by a pharmaceutical company. Mm. And in some situations, the pharmaceutical company doesn't mess with it. They just say, okay, we'll keep it the way it was because, you know, they're doing really well. They're turning enough profit, et cetera, et cetera. But um, in some times, you actually see some changes starting to come in. The ingredients start getting cheaper. And they, they try to ride out that name that was built up in the first place because the average they're consumer... They're less regulated. No. They're, they're less not. regulated. Yeah. Actually, yes. It portrays how the supplement companies are doing a better job in keeping good quality, you know. Exactly. And it's funny so, how at the end of that CBS clip, they, you know, they always put that caveat in. Consult your doctor, you know, make sure everything is safe. But if the average person <laughs> consulted their doctor about vitamins or supplements, their doctor would be like, oh, you don't need that. Let's just make an expensive urine, you know. Yeah. Like the most I've seen doctors prescribe, they might prescribe a multivitamin, and it's definitely like low quality. <clears throat> yeah. So I've never seen any doctor employ any kind of supplements you know, across no. his, you know, patient spectrum at all. So consulting what, your doctor, I mean, come on. Well, I mean, what they're basically saying is, please go and consult somebody who knows nothing about this. <laughs> so please ask your Auntie Sue about supplementing to make sure that it's safe. I mean, you may as well be saying that. Ask your dog. <laughs> it is very frustrating because you see all these, you know, we have a health catastrophe. And Big Pharma is making it much worse. And then I see, at least in Spain, pharmaceutical companies are taking the supplement market, you know, uh, supplementing for melatonin, zinc, but uh, and they, they keep the profits for that as well. And not, it is not as good as supplements. They lower the doses or, you know, just pretty much like to portray the supplement as not as effective of a, as a real drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good supplements are overpriced. So, yes. Mm-hmm. It's a hard one to navigate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, there's definitely a stigma around it. I mean, uh, the other thing comes to mind, I know I mentioned last week the uh, the TV show House about the recalcitrant doctor. Uh, there was an episode of that where they uh, he had decided to give this revolutionary, highly controversial vitamin C treatment to his patient. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Everybody in the hospital was like, oh, that's crazy. You can't do that. You know, (laughs) but this is, you know, it's just as an example, it's a very popular show. And so people see that kind of thing and they're like, whoa, that's nuts. You know, like, I can't believe they would do that. But is it, is it really working? It could be wishful thinking because I think, you know, like, you know, in the U.S. especially, like a lot of people are very like, you know, do alternative research and, you know, at least uh, from the people I have talked online and uh, networked, you know, in the forum. It's like, yeah, there's like a, a whole gap of knowledge that has been filled by people who research and post their good experiences and so forth. So I wonder sometimes. Mm-hmm. I still think the percentage is, is fairly low. Uh, <laughs> I, want to, I want to be optimistic, but it's not. Uh, I'm having a hard time finding it. Oh, I mean, right. <laughs> I am optimistic about the, the people who are looking into 
these topics and doing natural treatments and stuff. But I do think that the, uh, that statistically it's a, it's a small segment of the population. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. that's why we have a health crisis is because mm-hmm. people are generally, uh, you know, fo- authoritarian followers generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have the, uh, the, the system that's built up around modern medicine and, and doctors, you know, being demigods, uh, people are going to follow what they say. And, uh, you know, if they, if they get sicker, it must be the disease and not the treatment. Mm-hmm. Genetics. So, so it's, it's going to get much natural worse. consequence of aging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Now everything is pretty much because of aging. Never mind that 18 years old are having diseases that before only like, you know, you have to be quite a few decades old before you get it. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah, speaking of health, oh, health crises and old diseases, are we going to talk about <laughs> the UK and what's yeah. going on there from what they report? That's crazy. Did you read the news about the comeback of syphilis? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is weird. But I was wondering yeah. when I read that, like, what population is this big uptick happening in? And uh, from this article, um, I believe it was... Health authorities sound the alert over soaring rates of syphilis in London. Uh, They're talking about a lot of the uptick in syphilis cases is actually among gay men practicing something called chemsex. I'm not quite sure what that is, but the men use drugs. uh, They don't use any protection like a condom and that they actively are seeking out sex with HIV positive men. So that's kind of bizarre. I think that was worded poorly. I think yeah. what they're saying is it's, it's HIV positive men who are seeking out other HIV positive men, so oh. that they, so that the you know I've already got it, so it doesn't matter. I can do whatever mm-hmm. I want. I I think that that was the that was the the kind of my slant on it anyway, because it would be very strange for somebody who is not HIV positive to seek out an HIV positive. I know partner. that's why I was kind of perplexed there, but it doesn't just. I mean, there's a rise in syphilis, so they are counting at the uh, at the UK health departments. But I think it's also indicative of the just disintegration of society and the sexual depravity that is going on nowadays. I mean, maybe we wouldn't have seen this if society wasn't at the particular stage that it is in now, and it's just kind of like a beacon that things are going down south really fast. <laughs> Yeah. Just to give you an idea of how bad it is, uh, in, the article, in the article it says that Dr. Patrick French, he's a genitourinary medicine consultant and for the regions of central and northwest London in the, National Secu- in the NHS Foundation Trust. He says, when I started working in sexual health in London, we might have diagnosed four or five with syphilis, people with syphilis in a year. We can now see that number of people with syphilis in a day or two. Mm. <sighs> well, it said that uh, there's five. The figures have risen five times since just since last year. Wow! Just since last That's, year. Yeah. Mm. Like, uh, and yeah, Tiff. I think that you're right. Like, I think that this is kind of like we are living in a diseased society, mm-hmm. and this kind of is just you know, another manifestation of that diseased society. Like so people are getting a, <laughs> just 
skyrocketing rates of this disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, it yeah. could be from disaffection or lack of meaningful social bonds that, I don't know, are people having more sex than they had before all of this happened? Or uh, It's hard to kind of really put your <laughs> finger on this. <laughs> Yeah. It also reminds me gonorrhea, uh, gonorrhea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also a few articles and thought about it, and also in the UK, it's getting much more virulent, and some of the strains stopped responding to antibiotics, which has been a very rare thing in the past, in the recent past, actually. You know, you usually mm-hmm. give antibiotics and it works, and right now they have gonorrhea-resistant, you know, strains. Wow. In the UK as well. Well, the crazy thing that it's not even just, you know, sexually transmitted diseases that are that are on the increase in the UK. Mm-hmm. Apparently, what they call Victorian diseases like scur- uh, scurvy and scarlet fever are also increasing. Um, there was one article um, on SOT that said uh, for scurvy in the UK, the rate is now 113 per, per 100,000 people, up 38% from last year. Wow. I mean, that... That that's just mind blowing. Like scurvy is a is a prevent. It's not even really a disease. It's a vitamin C deficiency. So yeah. it's like how, like you know, you can't you can't really call that a, like a, a you know. It's not like scurvy is some communicable disease that people are catching from each other. This is from malnutrition, straight up. Got it thirty eight percent up for in one year. That's just and also, and also tuberculosis, which is thought to be like a third world you know infection. Now, parts of London have higher rates of tuberculosis than Rwanda or Iraq. Jeez. Well, they said in these yeah. articles that in the UK, malnutrition increased 51% over the last five years and that there yeah. were over 7,000 people admitted to the hospital with a primary or secondary diagnosis of malnutrition between August of 2014 and July of this year. So what's been going on in the UK um, I'm thinking about the austerity measures, you know, the yeah. widening gap between the rich and the poor is causing all this malnutrition, not to mention like the just awful state of food in general. More people, yeah. like especially poor people, depending on like fast food, like dollar menus and that, to yeah. you know just have something to eat every day. And it's no wonder that well, all these diseases are coming back. People are really malnourished. I mean, they might yeah, be. I think that that's totally true. Be eating or be well-fed, looking in a certain way. They might be obese, but they're malnourished. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I was talking to a friend of mine from the UK actually, who was telling me about. There's apparently this this kind of uh, this meme going around in the UK, and it says "heat or eat," mm-hmm. and it's basically like people have to choose between whether they not want to be able to heat their house or be able to actually eat. Uh, and that that's kind of the state of of uh, of where people are at with you know just their quality of life. So I've I think seen, a lot of people. Sorry, I've seen ahead. a similar yes, I have seen a similar situation in Spain. I don't well, I might be wish you know blind. I don't think it is as bad as what is reported from the UK. But yes, I've seen the elderly here. The bill for the electrical bill is so expensive that some people actually don't put the, the heating in winter mm-hmm. and i live in the regions uh, the coldest regions in in spain so it is not actually like mediterranean hot weather all year round you know you could really do with some heating and yes and i have seen a lot of scarlet fever whereas before in costa rica which is really like a third world country and i practice in hospitals 
which were in the poorest regions. I actually saw like one case of scarlet fever in my whole Costa Rican years. And in Spain, it was one after the other, after the other cases of scarlet fever in children, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, apparently even in the UK, scarlet fever has doubled in recent years, <sighs> since 2011. Um, it doubled from 466 cases in 2011 to 1,099 in 2015. Huh. Yeah, there's also things like uh, diphtheria and cholera, which are increasing. Like cholera, that's just insane to me. Most that's often, insane. cholera is actually coming from contaminated water supply mm-hmm. or contaminated food. So, I mean, there you're looking at like, you know, it's not just um, uh, malnutrition, but it seems like the actual infrastructure might be kind of collapsing in some ways. Like Disintegrating. Yeah, basically. I mean, usually, like, the cholera was basically, you know, came about because of really, really poor sanitation. And, you know, you'd have basically, you know, raw sewage going into water wells and stuff like that. Like, that, that's, how, that's how cholera ends up spreading. So the fact that cholera is, is, is kind of making a comeback is just insane. Yeah, on the one hand, you could have the poor infrastructure. But, you know, considering the malnutrition and how... Being poorly nourished can impact your immune system. It looks like you just have like this epidemic of people with lowered immunity catching all these old diseases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the stress and the floodings, which promote mm-hmm. like things like, you know, you know, like even cholera, you know. I remember, you know, from floodings in the past, the first alert for us was uh, be careful about cholera outbreaks. Wow. That is just bizarre. <laughs> One of our chatters said it's interesting that at a time of uh, supposed progress, we're regressing to getting ancient diseases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Everything <laughs> yeah, old so, is so. new again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think uh, there was yeah. another one, too, that they said there's been a, a resurgence in gout as mm-hmm. well. And gout is absolutely a, di- a, a disease of malnutrition, for sure. You know, they call it, it has this reputation from being, from people like eating too much meat, getting, getting gout because it was the only, only the, the rich people kind of back in the Victorian era that was, that were getting it. Or being and, alcoholics now, too. Well, yeah, that's just the thing. I mean, you know, they, they called it the rich man's disease because, and, and they attributed it to them eating all these kind of rich foods and things like that. But I think it probably comes down to booze because that's actually something that is, has been pointed out. It's alcohol and probably sugar. You know, it's yes. not because oh, they eat too much meat. No, it's not because they eat too much meat. It's because they're eating sugar and they're drinking booze. Yeah. yeah. And fructose. Fructose is actually raises uh, uric acid, which is the yeah. for goat. There you go. So it's now, it's now more like a, a disease of the poor more than anything else. <laughs> yeah. Eating this garbage processed food is what's getting these people gout and booze too, probably. <laughs> Yeah, <clears throat> well, it's a it's a big issue. I mean, it's uh, uh, you know it's worldwide, but it seems like I wonder if the um, quote unquote first world or progressed uh, societies uh, on the planet are getting their comeuppance in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because Gabby, like you said, you saw less cases of scarlet fever in, in Costa Rica than you did in Spain. You know. Um, <laughs> I would think a, a lot of people that uh, 
Well, you know, I guess I'm just going to end up repeating myself, but we've talked many times about this and it's, it's clear, uh, it's total no brainer. You just have to look at the data, um, and just look at the people around you that, uh, when you eat, um, a standard, you know, kind of Western modern diet with, with processed foods, uh, with high sugar, um, and a sedentary lifestyle, um, combine all those things, you know, it's, it's a recipe for, uh, bad health. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's Oh, go ahead, Gabby, please. No, no, I was going to change the subject, so go ahead. <laughs> uh, sure. No, let's do, let's do that. <laughs> no, that is a very important argument, like the, the key, you know, aspect. But we're told to worry about Zika. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. The ultimate distraction. And we're told to worry about supplements, whereas in the case of scurvy, if they were allowed their vitamin C... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It probably wouldn't happen. He's a controversial subject though. <laughs> Very risky. What uh what it what is what is up with Zika? I mean I haven't even heard about it for months now, you know, since it was like the most dangerous thing that ever happened on the planet. Yeah, it, <laughs> it had this big uh I guess months and months ago there was this big outbreak allegedly in Brazil. And they tried to tie all these microcephaly cases, you know, babies born of very small heads and, you know, uh, brain damage. They tried to tie this to the Zika virus. Well, the Zika virus traditionally, I mean, has been around for what they discovered in the 1940s, maybe. And mm-hmm. it's a fairly benign virus. You get like cold and flu symptoms sometimes, if that. But very mild, and you can get over it. There's really no treatment to do except, you know, rest and fluids. You know, most people feel fine with it. And now all of a sudden there's this gigantic catastrophe, and it's causing all these microcephaly cases. And, you know, there was kind of this lull in between the initial outbreak in Brazil, and then you kind of didn't hear anything about it. And then, like, in the last month or so, it's coming out again, and now it's spreading all over the world. And you can get it by, you know, having sex with somebody who has Zika. And now they're saying that people are getting it in ways that they don't know. You know, they didn't have sex with anybody who had Zika. They were a caretaker for somebody who had Zika. Mm, It's just bizarre. Saying that it predisposed you to Alzheimer's and cognitive problems, Mm -hmm. you know. The Rockefeller Foundation come up with this research, by the way, which is interesting. <laughs> yes. Very interesting. Yeah. They... Yeah. I think one thing that's pretty pretty evident, um, if you look at this, is that the whole Zika scare is just hype. Like, really, it's just ramping up the fear factor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at the pattern of it, it happens over and over and over again. You know, swine flu, SARS, Ebola, yeah. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just it's like, it's ad nauseum. It's just like, you know, they, they periodically, they probably have it marked on their calendars. We need to ramp up the year again. Every year it seems. It's something new. It's, it's, it's it's false disease season. I have it marked. (laughs) It is interesting because it imprints into the awareness of people that there is this evil virus. I might need a vaccine, you know, to protect myself. Instead of addressing all important things, which is diet, you know, you know, supplements, mm-hmm. <laughs> so forth. Well, now sure, they they started this um, uh, pest 
pesticide spraying campaign in the Miami area because allegedly yeah. now Miami, that part of Florida, is a hot spot for Zika now. And like, what, 14 people, <laughs> 14 <laughs> people they found has Zika. So now Run they're going to, the yeah, they're going to start spraying something called Naled, which ironically causes neurological disorders and it causes. Um, <laughs> 15% smaller brains in baby animals and it increases aggressiveness and memory deficits. And it's also How crazy is that? Yeah, it's How also been so? classified as carcinogenic to humans. It causes pancreatic cancer and leukemia. So this is what they're going to spray to protect people from a virus that gives you cold symptoms. That, that is so crazy. <laughs> First day like you know, publish all this research saying that the virus is what causes this. Then they spray all this, and what we will have? Yes, like anyway, that cocktail. I'm telling you guys. <laughs> oh, I was just gonna say, I'm, I'm telling you guys, it's you know, zombies. Ben, they're coming. <laughs> smaller, <laughs> smaller brains. Heightened aggressiveness. I mean, the irony in this is just so—it's it, unbelievable. Like basically, you know, that they are spraying a pesticide to kill off the mosquitoes because the mosquitoes might give you a disease that might cause the exact same symptoms or effects that the of the disease that they're trying to protect you from. Like and has, worse. <laughs> has nobody even looked at this? It's just unbelievable. And then if, if they do, you know, from all these uh, side effects from uh, the pesticide spraying, once those start spreading around, they will undoubtedly get blamed on Zika mm -hmm. and saying, oh, no, we're not doing enough to prevent Zika. Uh, spray some more. Well, that's where the vaccines come in. You need a Zika vaccine. Everybody has to take yeah. it or else. And then we can release some GM mosquitoes, too. So Oxitec can make a lot of money for releasing these mosquitoes. Oh, people are making so much money off these fake disease scares. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. I think, Doug, you... You hit the nail on the head there with, you know, <clears throat> that people will believe uh, what they're told. So when you say, is anybody looking into this? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, no, not by and large. You know, um, and it's uh, it's really, it's idiocracy happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's actually, it, it seems overblown and melodramatic to say that. But when you look at it, when you look at everything all together, it really is happening. People mm -hmm. will believe whatever you tell them. And you can mm -hmm. say, be afraid of this. I'm going to give you the cure, which actually causes the thing you're supposed to be afraid of. Um, yeah. But never mind, mm. you know. And since you got it, we're sorry that cure apparently didn't work. Let's try another one. Uh, by the way, that's going to be twenty dollars a shot, you know. <laughs> and it just keeps going and going and going. Yeah, and it just shows how the media is in bed with the CDC and Big Pharma. They'll just basically say whatever they want to say just to spread the fear. Because there's really has not been any proven link between Zika and microcephaly. There's not been any proven uh, information. There's been no research saying that Zika can be spread sexually. So they're just, mm -hmm. you know, putting these assumptions out there and the media presents them as fact. And it's mm -hmm. complete. It's just lies. Well, because they benefit off anything that sells a headline. That is so true. Then they've learned very effectively that that spreading fear is what sells headlines mm -hmm. so yeah i mean you know it's it, it probably doesn't take a lot of arm twisting for them to print that crap 
Yeah. Just see what the what the story they used to, to for the scaremongering of supplements. You know, a baby died because he had probiotics. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's something that they use a lot. You know, they pull out a dead baby here and there. I mean, they know that exactly. people are very invested in their, in their children. They love their children. They want to protect their children. So they're just playing on that natural uh, parental instinct to protect the children. And they're just getting over big time. Oh, God. They know how to push the buttons. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever I see a new Zika story, I just roll my eyes and. Ugh. Well, I mean, it also keeps people. <clears throat> sorry, it also keeps people focused on the wrong thing. Yeah. I mean, everybody is running around terrified of Zika, and like, you know, in in Florida they have these campaigns that are like talking about getting rid of any standing water, which you know it might not be such a bad idea anyway because mosquito bites are annoying. But, uh, but I mean, people are panicked about it and any standing water that's around, they have to eradicate it. And it's like, what could all these people be doing instead of running around on a uh, standing water hunt? You know, it's Florida. Be- it's filled with standing water. It's very humid. It's a swamp. <laughs> <laughs> in the meantime, they eat, they eat rice, which has arsenic and uranium and mm. lots of sugar, which it, it's their brain and so forth, you know. Yeah, exactly. Playing their Pokemon Go. (laughs) And the people in Florida don't want it. I mean, they've signed petitions and all that. They don't want GM mosquitoes. They don't want Naled spraying. But they're just going to give it to them anyway. Just take it. Yeah, I read in the story that the town was completely depopulated when the spraying was going on. Everybody went somewhere else. (laughs) But which is funny because they're being told that it's not it's not harmful. They're being told that oh it's fine, it's no big deal. But this stuff is actually way more dangerous if you inhale it as opposed mm-hmm. to like eating it. So mm-hmm. I mean, good on people for actually being. You know what? I know they're saying it's safe, but I'm gonna I'm gonna stay inside. I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when when was the last time that a uh, you know petition or any kind of a democratic vote actually? did anything in the realm of, of public health. That's true. You know, or anything or, anywhere. Or anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're yeah, just I mean, gonna do what they want to do and, you know, you peons just shut up and take it. I mean we can act like we're yeah. living in a democracy. You can go out and march on the streets, but really, was it ever done ever in the history of the world? Yep. I mean, you know, we got a new park uh, because a few people went to the went to the village hall and said we need a new park. You know, <laughs> sorry, that was an obscure wow. joke there. But stick yeah. it to the man. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like you said, you know, all the people in Florida saying that they don't want this. Uh, you know, I feel for them, uh, yeah. but I, I don't. I don't think that's going to work. Uh, you know, and and at a certain point, for 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 a long time, uh, when I would think about this, and I would think about talking to people who were, say, you know, you live uh, in an area, you know, where like like this, or uh, anywhere else in the country where they're using a certain pesticide, or like the whole DBT thing back in the day, I would think just move. I mean, I realize that it's easier said than done, but mm-hmm. you know, if your life is at stake, move. Um, but it, it's not that uh, it's not that simple anymore. There are very few places you can go shy of like Antarctica or Northern Ontario 
uh, to get away from, uh, you know, the, uh, what, what's happening in, in society mm-hmm. as far as like the, the pollutions, the modern, you know, industrial pollutants and, uh, uh pesticides and, and chemicals in everything that we ingest. Mm. Well, even in Northern Ontario, you've got all the mining stuff going on up there. So maybe the holiday <laughs> advert. <laughs> I think it is. Right. <laughs> Yeah, maybe the poisonous gases of Venus are safer. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Let's move to Venus. So not to not to be like a total bummer, but I think that the uh, I think the way that you know uh, to look at this and deal with it is to consider what you can do uh, mm-hmm. where you are with propping up your own health, um, you know, and uh, and staying away from uh, from eating and ingesting the things that are gonna that are gonna cause you know, these degenerative conditions, uh, which if I may segue brings us into talking about the, the keto diet. Um, because I think that that is something that a lot of people can do, uh, you know, to, to help, uh, combat the state of, of health in the world these days. Um, but unfortunately there's a lot of scaremongering around that too. I mean, Mm -hmm. you, you talk to, uh, to any medical professional, they're going to tell you that ketosis means starvation, uh, and that you're putting mm-hmm. yourself in danger, you know. Mm-hmm. And you're depriving your body of you know, necessary energy from carbohydrates. Your your body needs carbohydrates for energy. You can't get to energy age more faster. Fat. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to make yeah, your body nice and inflamed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it came up in a conversation. Uh, I remember this last winter, I was talking to a guy who uh, races dogs. He's a dog musher. Um, and we were talking about the raw food diet, uh, for dogs, uh, you know, raw meat and bones. Uh, and he said it was great. Uh, he totally, uh, stood by it and he was like, well, you know, dogs don't need carbohydrates for energy like humans do. Mm-hmm. Um, huh. be like, no, but I didn't push it at the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we, with all the research that we've done on, on the ketogenic diet, uh, it has become pretty obvious that all the scaremongering is just kind of BS and that, you know, obviously there are individual variances um, and that it might not be ideal for everybody. But if you are trying to get over any kind of health issue or if you're even just looking to make your brain work better and kind of be healthier and, and actually achieve a state of kind of glowing health, the ketogenic diet, I mean, if you just try it, you will find the benefits. You know, there's obviously, you know, in, in a lot of cases, some troubleshooting that has to go along with that. But um, by lowering your amount of carbohydrate, raising the amount of fat, you're putting your body kind of into this ideal state um, where it's burning a very efficient energy. And that has benefits kind of across the board. So, you know, even I mean, there's even research out there um, about how it, it can help with uh, cancer, let alone um, all these other kind of more um maybe less drastic diseases, but even things like, you know, Alzheimer's and uh, epilepsy and all, the, all these different kinds of things. So I think, you know, it's, it's, we talk about it here a lot on the show, but, you know, when you just get back to basics on it and, and say, you know, if you, if you just lower the amount of carbohydrate that you're eating um, to a considerably low level and raise the amount of fat, you will see the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that alone is a good approach to take, you know, um, I hesitate to say, you know, quote unquote, try the full ketogenic diet um, because the transition can be pretty rough, especially if you're not used to it. And it actually can be 
detrimental to switch back and forth. You know, say eat like a, a load of, of fat for a week and then go back to eating a bunch of carbs and sugar the next week. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's not going to do you any good. So Yeah, and, well, and if, you, if you're doing those two extremes, I think that's true. But um, yeah, one of the articles actually that... But oh, go ahead, Mark please. Sisson actually uh, talks about a little bit about it, and he says that um, you know it's beneficial to kind of stay, it, you know, kind of back and forth a little bit. Uh, you know, being um, kind of depending on fat is kind of your main source of energy, but you know, having carb days or or um, you know having you know certain periods of the day where maybe your body's using a little bit more carb mm-hmm. isn't really detrimental, and I think. Um, you know, that can be kind of helpful for a lot of people to not go, you know, super hardcore with it. Mm. Um, but of course, like you're saying, Jonathan, if somebody's, if somebody is like, I'm keto one day and then the next day I'm eating cake, like it's obviously that is an extreme and, and yeah. you definitely want to avoid those swings for sure. Yeah. And you have to be realistic too. If you're going to embark upon a ketogenic diet strict, you have to realize that, you know, the whole rest of your life, are you not going to have a carb treat every now and then? So if you go back and forth a little bit, you know, if you increase your metabolic flexibility, where one day if you might have more carbs than usual, maybe the next day if you go back to eating more ketogenically, your body is not going to have a really, really hard time making that transition back. So just no. being a little, a little bit more flexible yeah, you know. I think uh, approach I've, yeah. I've read some people taking, um, you know, eating a keto breakfast, maybe fasting through the day or um, maybe fasting when you first wake up and then having like a keto kind of lunch and then maybe having a little bit more carb with dinner, mm-hmm. a reasonable type of carb in the form of like vegetables or, or yeah. um, some kind of starch maybe or something that that sometimes seems for some people seems to benefit them more than being in ketosis all the time. Yeah, if there's the good bacteria in your gut, so that keeps uh, mm-hmm. from it prevents um, overgrowth of fungi. Mm-hmm. And one of the the whole points of being and having a ketogenic diet, you might want to be strict at first. Just you want to make mm-hmm. sure that your mitochondria start to improve. You might get rid of some old. You know, mitochondria that don't work very well, and you might make some new mitochondria. So that mitochondria gives you more energy, and your body functions better. So you might be able to tolerate a little bit more carbohydrate if you start off a little bit more strict, where your body can heal itself and get into a state where it's you know performing at a more optimal level. You might be able to be a little bit looser once you you know gone through that initial period of ketogenic stress (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to make a contrast from our earlier discussion about big pharma and so forth (laughs) is that um, Sot published recently an article on the ketogenic diet or there is a report of a clinic who's having very good results with a ketogenic diet and intravenous vitamin C Mm -hmm. in cancer and uh, they have like with ovarian cancer on um, the final stage, stage four, which is basically terminal cancer. And with these measures, they have been, you know, free of disease, like from the, um, uh, in the last 10 years. I was like, for me, well, this is impressive because the last two persons that I met with ovarian stage cancer, four, they died pretty quickly, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So actually being in ketosis makes you more responsive to the healing effects of vitamin C? That's what they're saying, yeah. 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 Mm. <laughs> if they will allow yeah. more like resources or less censorship to publish the results, oh, I think everybody will be like in standing ovation, including mm-hmm. all those stupid doctors. <laughs> <laughs> no, they still might poo-poo it. They don't want to yeah. admit that they were wrong. <laughs> yes. Exactly. That's probably true. Well, I know that's I've mentioned too um, uh, before uh, Dr. Tent out of uh, Detroit, chiropractor, homeopathic guy. Um, they, in their clinic, whenever they get uh, patients who come in with cancer, not, you know, they're not oncologists, but, you know, a lot of people have cancer. So they come in, the first thing that they recommend is a ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And they've also seen good results with that. Um, yeah. I mean, the research is out there. You really just need to look mm-hmm. into it. And it, uh, also to say, you know, this is not something that you can just like hop into, um, and say, Oh, I'm just going to eat keto now. It like, it takes work, especially if you're, if you have any kind of like addictive personality or if you're really used to eating a certain way. Um, I can attest that, uh, carbon sugar cravings, once they get a hold of you, um, getting getting out of them is 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 rough. So it takes willpower, determination. So I would recommend if you are going to do it, um, to study it a lot because seeing the results and reading case studies about it can be very motivational. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, start out slow. Don't just jump from eating McDonald's every day to <laughs> going <laughs> keto. I mean, there's yeah. I think a lot of us started, you know. First, we stop sugar, then we stop gluten and dairy, and then we slowly started decreasing the carbs and upping the fat. Because, yeah, it does take a transition period. You might technically be in ketosis, as in your body is producing ketones, or you might you know, test above a certain range with your, your ketogenic blood strips, but you might not be fully adapted where you feel well. And you can go long periods of time without eating food and just be okay with it because your body is, you know, take advantage of your fat stores. So it might take like a few weeks or a month at least before you start feeling really well enough to say, hey, this is something for me. And a lot of people, they yeah. might not have the stamina to give it as much time as they need to give it before they start seeing results and they might quit. Well, part, I think part of that is also um, the detox effect. Yeah. I mean, if you go into um, a fat-burning mode where your body is burning off um, fat stores, um, anything that's stored in that fat will suddenly be in circulation. So um, I think a lot of people who have difficulty transitioning to a high-fat, low-carb diet um, a lot of the, the difficulty that they're actually having are, are detox issues. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's not a bad idea to, to at least, I mean, when we switched over to a keto diet, we had been doing different detox protocols for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, um, that, that a lot, you know, people need to, to kind of go about this in an intelligent way, like, uh, Jonathan was saying, um, and kind of do your research, but also, um, you know, maybe get some heavy metal testing done or, um, you know, different types of, of testing or look at what your exposure has been to, to different kinds of things and maybe go on like maybe some kind of detox diet first, maybe take on some um, some detox protocols um, first and try and get some of that crap out of you 
mm-hmm. before going into to uh, a keto state because if that stuff you know if you if you have kind of a heavy metal overload and you suddenly go into ketosis you're pro- you're going to be feeling it for sure yeah and just look and consider your body type if you're a skinny type you obviously don't have a problem processing carbohydrates. So you may be able to get away with eating more carbohydrates on a ketogenic diet. If you're a fatty type, you might want to decrease the carbs a little bit lower. So, <laughs> yeah. Everybody's a snowflake. Yeah. <laughs> Use some common sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a superpower. It shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> There was well, also uh, thought. Oh, sorry, Jonathan. No, go ahead, Gabby. Please go ahead. There was just um, other two articles and thought recently that spoke about the neuroprotective effects of the ketogenic diet. Mm, I read it carefully. There was yes, maybe a few fine details, more well described on the science behind it. Uh, for example, that it increases your um, your natural volume, which is GABA. And uh, it turns down inflammation in your brain. Uh, I think that was pretty interesting. It also reminded me how in mainstream medicine, when there is a child with a very debilitating disease, neurological one, either congenital or acquired, the ketogenic ketogenic diet is the last option. Would you guys believe that? Mm. They actually try like a cocktail of drugs first. And if that doesn't Mm. work, they apply the diet. And it should I be the other way around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I even had the opportunity to, to speak with a mom. Uh, the child had a congenital disease, genetic. And there was evidence that the ketogenic diet was very helpful. And um, they were adding like two or three or four antiepileptic drugs to the child before they were actually considered a ketogenic diet. And I was mm. like, you can do this diet, you know. <laughs> Yeah, like harm him. You see, it's like a therapeutic model accepted. <laughs> Crazy. It's really weird, I, and I don't, I don't quite understand what it is, but how resistant people are to change their diet. Mm-hmm. Like realistically, when you look at it, it's just diet, right? Like it's just what you're eating. It's not really that big a deal, but it really seems like there's this kind of hurdle where people like they will do anything before they change their diet. Yeah. It's, you know, you, like, don't take away my cheese. Don't take away my bread. It's just, it just, it seems like there's this kind of hurdle that, that people are so resistant to going over. You know, even I, I remember when I was actually seeing clients, like I would second, I would, I would be like, you know, if I had a particularly resistant client, I'd be like, just change for a month, just do this diet for a month and see how you feel. And still there was so much resistance. Like mm-hmm. a month is not that long, mm-hmm. but people were so resistant. no. Absolutely not. I can't do this. No, you have to give me suggestions other than dietary changes. Mm. And listen to the absurd argument like, poor baby will not have be able to have uh, birthday cakes and bread. And, <laughs> and the baby has a crippling disease that it's eating the brain away. <sighs> I mean, it takes, you, it takes you, what, 20 minutes to eat a meal? Like, really, you can't do without that 20 minutes? You know, have something else instead? It just seems so ridiculous. Yeah, well, it's a that, very strong think, pull, like how people, their brains are actually addicted to certain foods and, you know, yeah. threaten to take that yeah. away from them. They just go off like a drug addict. I can understand where it comes from because I used to have very strong food cravings like that. 
But, you know, you mm. just have to grow up and get over it. Like Gabby said, they're calling each other poor baby because basically that's what they are. They're little babies. They can't grow up and take their health into their own hands. They want something quick. They want it fast. If they can just take a pill, you know, have a magic wand waved over them, then that's what they want to go for. But, you know, I mean, there's certain people that can do that and other people who can't. And I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a, do. a good point to <laughs> Part of the reason that it's so difficult for a lot of people is brain chemistry, you know. And when you're, they they don't recognize that the that the crappy feeling that they have is withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I I know that this will fix the crappy feeling, so I'm just going to do that. And that once you get into that loop of, uh, you know, satisfying your your brain chemistry cravings, um, it's really hard to pull out of. So I get what you're saying, Doug. But I mean, I think if you look at it as a uh, uh, a matter of addiction rather than just yeah. kind of making a choice. Um, you can see why it's, why it's really hard for a lot of people, but that's yeah. also, you know, like Tiff said, people need to grow up, you know, your health is at stake. Um, and that's something I struggle with too. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, quit, quit being a baby. You know, <laughs> this is, you know, it's, it might not, it, you know, we're, we're taught that it's not that harmful, to have some bread and some cheese and stuff like that. But when you look at it at the long run over 20, 30, 40 years, um, you need to take the long view and look at what it's going to do to you in that, in that amount of time. Mm-hmm. I think the new health and wellness show slogan should be, don't be a baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't have a temper tantrum over it. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's also easier for people like us who have curiosity about certain things and the way things work Mm -hmm. in the world. A lot of people just don't have that because I remember when I first came across this information and I was still working heavily with a lot of clients in depth, um, I thought that, oh, if they just read what I read, they'd be excited as I am. They'd want to change. They'd want to try it and experiment. But a lot of people just aren't like that. I don't know what yeah. it is that makes certain people different, but a lot of people can just go through their lives and be perfectly complacent with the way things are and not think that there could be something more. Yeah. Yep. Well, um, do you guys think this is a good time to go to the, the pet health segment? We have a longer uh, pet health segment today, so um, I think uh, yeah. it's a good time. Yeah. Let's, let's go to that, and we'll we'll come back and uh, wrap up after this. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya. And today, I would like to share with you an excellent talk by Dr. Karen Becker about allergies in pets and how to treat them naturally. Since various allergies appear to be a number one cause of various dermatological problems, knowing how to deal with them, or even better, how to prevent them, is very important. So here is the talk. Enjoy! Hi, this is Dr. Karen Becker offering you seven holistic tips for pets with allergies. Humans who suffer from seasonal allergies usually have symptoms involving the respiratory tract, like sniffling, sneezing, coughing, and sometimes difficulty breathing. But when a dog or cat has a seasonal allergic response, symptoms are incredibly diverse, but most often show up as a condition called allergic dermatitis, which is irritation or inflammation of the skin. 
A pet with allergies is usually incredibly itchy. He'll scratch excessively. He might bite or chew at a certain part of his body and is generally irritated. His skin can be irritated literally from the tip of his nose to the tip of his tail. He may rub his body against furniture or on the carpet to help relieve his miserable itch. As the itching and scratching gets progressively worse, sometimes and most of the time, the skin becomes very inflamed and can become secondarily infected. There might be areas of hair loss. There could be open sores or sores that have scabbed over. And he might develop hot spots, which are local areas of inflamed, infected skin as a result of natural bacteria overgrowth. So he didn't catch a bacteria. It's his own natural skin bacteria that has gone crazy in one area. Pets with seasonal allergies oftentimes also have problems with their ears and feet. The ear canals become very itchy and inflamed. They can become infected with yeast or bacteria as well. Very, very common uh, for animals in small, tight areas. That's where bacteria and yeast like to have a party. So between the nail beds, as armpits are a big common issue, but ears can be a real problematic source of issues for pets dealing with an allergic response. Symptoms of a potential ear infection include scratching of the ears, aggressive head shaking, hair loss around the ears, and a bad smell coming from the ears. There can also be a discharge, and the pet is so obsessed with body itching that they're not shaking their head. So if you see any discharge, if you lift up your pet's ear and see any discharge or debris at all, you need to be concerned about something going on inside your pet's ears. Because dogs and cats sweat from the the pads of their feet, the bottom of their feet, when they go outside, they tend to pick up thousands of allergens. So not only do they track those allergens back inside the home, which can then contaminate your home, but those allergens become incredibly itchy. So there can be a lot of excessive licking or chewing on pets' feet as well. The excessive licking and chewing can spark a secondary yeast infection on your on your dog's feet. And oftentimes you'll know that because they smell like uh, cheese popcorn or corn chips. There's a really musty, stinky odor coming from your pet's feet. That's yeast. And although not as common, some pets, particularly kitties, can actually develop a lot of common uh, symptoms for humans, runny eyes, watery eyes, sneezing and coughing. And dogs can develop that too, but more so cats. There are seven common sense things that you can do for allergic pets to help ease their discomfort when it comes to seasonal allergy responses. Number one is to address your pet's diet. The very first thing I do with a dog or cat dealing with allergies is to review their diet and assess the situation for the possibility of leaky gut. Leaky gut syndrome, which is also called dysbiosis, is oftentimes the reason that seasonal allergies get progressively worse year after year. So if you have a dog that's two and used to maybe just be a little itchy uh, May-June, and then at three, it's May-June, July, and August, and then at four, it's year-round, you need to think about the potential of leaky gut playing into why the allergic response is progressing. Your pet's GI tract has the very important job of discernment, which means your pet has to know what to allow into the body and what to keep out. And those of you that have dogs know that they eat anything. So uh, the goal of a pet's GI tract is to allow in nutrients, but to keep out allergens. And there are a lot of reasons why pets' uh, GI tracts can become confused and leaky, which means allow allergens into their systems. But oftentimes, medication can prompt leaky gut syndrome. Antibiotics are a big cause for leaky gut syndrome in pets. But other medications can also create a leaky gut situation. Any pet on chronic drugs, you need to be thinking about the potential for it uh, disrupting the microbiome in your pet's GI tract which can facilitate a leaky gut reaction. Certainly, processed foods containing genetically modified ingredients are among the most common reasons I see leaky gut uh, with pets across the board. 
But in my opinion, all animals with any allergic response should be transitioned to an anti-inflammatory diet. Diets that create or worsen inflammation are high in carbohydrates. Your allergic pet's diet should be very low in grain content. So the, you need to flip over the bag and make sure you're reading. So even if it says grain-free, you're not off the hook. The label needs to say no soy, no corn, no rice, no wheat, no organic whole wheat, no tapioca, no pea, lentil, chickpeas, and of course, no potatoes. If you adhere to Chinese food energetics or Chinese food theory, you're also going to want to avoid energetically hot foods or foods um, that can manifest or increase an inflammatory response. So most of the time across the board, this means avoiding chicken. By eliminating extra sugar or carbohydrates in the diet, you'll also limit the food supply for yeast, which can actually be very beneficial for itchy dogs. The second thing you can do uh, for animals dealing with an allergic reaction is to provide a source of omega-3 fatty acids. The best source of omega-3 fatty acids comes from uh, the ocean. So krill oil, salmon oil, tuna oil, anchovy oil, sardine oils, other sources of fish body oils are all really great sources of omega-3s for dogs and cats. Make sure that your omega-3s are tested for purity as well as sustainably sourced and ideally come from a capsule or an airless pump to avoid rancidity issues with pour-on oils. I also recommend coconut oil for allergic pets because it contains lauric acid. And lauric acid actually naturally is an antifungal uh, part of coconut oil which can help suppress the production of yeast in your pet's body. Using an omega-3 fatty acid like fish body oils with coconut oil can actually moderate or even suppress the inflammatory response in pets, which is a great natural option when it comes to an allergic pet. Offering your pet clean, pure drinking water is really important. It's important that your pet is not consuming fluoride, chlorine, or heavy metals or any other contaminants for that, for that matter. If you are not currently filtering your dog or cat's water and they have an allergic response, it's one of the most important things you can do in conjunction to changing the diet is to eliminate those potential chemicals coming in through water. The third thing you can do is to protect your pet's immune system. Because allergies are an exaggerated immune system, that's the definition of an allergy, is an immune system overreaction, it's really important to not unintentionally stimulate or confuse your pet's immune system beyond what it already is. This means avoiding unnecessary vaccines and veterinary drugs, including chemical pest preventives. Vaccines, by nature, stimulate your pet's immune system, which is the last thing an allergic pet needs. I recommend instead that you talk to your integrative veterinarian about titers to measure your pet's immunity as an alternative to automatically vaccinating. If your pet is taking medication regularly, or if, if he or she's on long-term medication in the past, or even now, talk to your veterinarian about doing what I call damage control, which means providing organ support to, uh, for certain drugs or supplying an intermittent detox program to help the body eliminate harmful byproducts of drug residues. The fourth thing you can do is to manually remove allergens yourself. Now, you'd think that this often overlooked super common sense approach would be a vet's first suggestion for contact allergies, but I find very few conventional veterinarians actually take advantage of this free and really effective approach. It's called irrigation therapy, and we use it in, in human medicine. Uh, people that have contact allergies, dermatologists say take a shower twice a day. Rinse those allergens off of your body. It just seems so easy and simple, and for some reason we don't recommend it in veterinary medicine. It is a pain but it's highly effective and free. 
Pets who go outside regularly collect millions of allergens. Now, you can't see them, but because pets are fuzzy and because they're swiffering their, their yard, all of those allergens are stuck on your pet's fur. And when they come inside, they're spreading allergens all over their body, but they're also, those allergens are also profoundly irritating uh, to their skin. So a common sense approach is just to rinse them off. And just by rinsing or hosing off your dog, you can provide immediate uh, relief for irritated, inflamed skin. Frequent bathing or actually lathering up your dog is actually a really great common sense, almost free approach that can also help dramatically reduce allergen load on the body while also preventing secondary bacterial infections. Of course, I recommend you only use grain-free, organic, and pH-balanced shampoo. And because... um, Oatmeal is a carbohydrate, and because carbs feed yeast, I don't recommend oatmeal shampoos for any allergic dogs. Foot soaks, especially if the only symptom of your of your pet's seasonal allergic response is itchy feet, foot soaks are a super great common sense way to reduce the amount of allergens that your pets trek into the house, but also um, is a great way to just common sense reduce the amount of allergens and irritation on your dog's feet. So. You can do foot soaks in a myriad of different ways. I have a whole different video on how to set up a foot soak. But by you allowing your dog to rinse off his feet, I use dilute betadine in the solution. And you can set up a sweater box right outside your home, put the hose in it, add some betadine to its iced tea color. You parading your dog through a betadine solution for just a few seconds after he comes in from outside, patting them dry and letting him back into the home, you can dramatically reduce how irritated, potentially infected, and certainly how inflamed your pet's paws could be. In fact, I have been able to manage many of my seasonally allergic dogs by foot soaks alone in my practice. Now, if you live in a condo or an apartment and you don't have access to be able to set something up outside your door, you can use a coffee can inside your home. You can pop your dog in your shower or bathtub. But the common sense uh, theory behind this is if your pet's digging at his feet, And if we know outdoor allergens are the root cause of the issue, you manually removing those allergens from your pet's feet provide tremendous relief and is um, a really common sense approach for avoiding drugs. Now, eye rinses can also be really effective for animals that are pawing or digging at their eyes. Performing a regular eye rinse like once a day is a great common sense cheap solution. It's very important, obviously, that you're not using human medicated eye drops. There's a great all-natural over-the-counter eye drop that's made by Halo Pets that can reduce eye irritation and inflammation. Great idea to do that as needed if your pet's digging at his eyes. The fifth thing you can do is to reduce allergens and toxins around the home or in your pet's immediate environment. Vacuum all your carpets, rugs and upholstery, clean your hardwood floors and wash your pet's bedding or even your human bedding if your pet's sleeping on it at least once a week during allergy season. Keeping the areas of your home very, very clean where your pet spends most of his time is really important because the goal is to reduce the indoor allergen load as much as possible. Obviously, use a non-toxic cleaning agent. Make sure that you're not adding anything toxic in the home, which can create multiple chemical hypersensitivities for pets. So swap out any toxic household cleaners for organic cleaners. Really good idea. During allergy season, it's a great idea to keep your windows closed as much as possible and to change the filters on your home heating unit or or air circulation unit uh, as often as possible. But in addition to that, getting uh, air purifier for the area that your pet's immediately in can actually be a great way to decrease environmental allergens as well as dust mites. Covering your pet's bedding 
with a dust mite cover is also a great way that you can unzip. Um, you put your pet's bed inside of a dust mite cover, and that's a great way to unzip and keep your pet on a really hypoallergenic surface that can dramatically reduce irritation coming from the environment. I also recommend that if you've purchased your pet's bed at a big box store, I can promise you it's coming from China and has probably been sprayed with flame retardant. Switching to an organic pet bed is a great way, especially if your pet has irritated and flame paws or skin, a great way to keep a secondary pretty toxic inflammatory chemical away from your pet's irritated and inflamed skin. Last, I recommend that you consider offering natural antihistamine support. There are some supplements that I very routinely prescribe for pets with seasonal allergic issues, starting with quercetin, which is a bioflavonoid with anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and antihistamine properties. I actually call it nature's Benadryl because it's really effective at suppressing histamine release. Histamine is what causes inflammation, redness, and irritation associated with an allergic response. So by down-regulating histamine production and expression, your pet's going to be less red, less irritated. Bromelain and papain are two proteolytic enzymes that increase the absorption of quercetin, making it more effective. So I like to combine those proteolytic enzymes with vitamin C and quercetin because they have a great synergistic effect. They also suppress prostaglandin release, which in turn decreases the pain and inflammation of irritated mucous membranes and other parts of the body over time. Other herbs, such as stinging nettle, butterbur, sorrel, verbena, elderflower, and cat's claw, have actually a really rich herbal history of helping mammals combat seasonal allergic responses. So historically, those have been used in humans, but in the last 100 years, veterinary herbalists have transposed them for dogs and cats with really nice success. Plant sterols and plant sterilins, which are the anti-inflammatory aspects of plants, have also been used successfully to modulate the immune system into more of a healthy, balanced response uh, if your pet's dealing with an environmental allergic response. So using the anti-inflammatory aspects of plants can actually help reduce inflammation in your pets. Local honey actually contains a small amount of pollen from the local area that can help desensitize the body to local allergens over time. In my opinion, the very best place to find local honey would be at your farmer's market or your small family-owned health food store. And check with your veterinarian about the dose to give your dog or cat, Uh, but it's a great way to naturally help desensitize your pet to local allergens. Now, if you find that you've tried all of my above suggestions with absolutely no success, then the next step is to help your pet's immune system quiet down by desensitization. And that's done either through a technique called NAET, which is an allergy elimination technique performed by practitioners trained to do so in dogs or cats, or through sublingual immunotherapy. Sublingual immunotherapy is also called SLIT. It's a relatively new variation of allergy shots or allergy injections to treat ectopic dermatitis, which is skin allergies. And it's actually been used, it's used successfully in dogs and cats as well as horses, but it's been used extensively in Europe for the last many, many, many years to treat humans very successfully without the use of a needle. So we like that for dogs and cats and horses as well. Sublingual therapy is wonderful because you just deliver the the micro dose of, of allergen orally, so under the tongue or in the mouth, which saves you the frustration of having to poke your pet with a needle. I've had very good success using this particular therapy and actually a brand called Respite, um, which is regionally specific immunotherapy. And I like this because it doesn't rely on an allergy test to determine what your dog or cat's allergic to. It actually uses a mixture of the most significant regional allergens. So for example, if you just moved to the Midwest in the middle of ragweed season, 
and your dog is suffering miserably, this may be a great uh, option or alternative, to, and it's a great chemical-free natural option to help desensitize your dog. If your pet has been diagnosed with atopic dermatitis, I would recommend that you talk to your veterinarian about sublingual immunotherapy, which can absolutely, potentially, over time, resolve and completely fix or cure an underlying environmental allergy instead of just addressing your pet's symptoms, um, which oftentimes can become progressively worse year after year. When you do decide to use sublingual therapy, most pets do need something immediately right now to help relieve their irritation. So I do recommend that if you start with immunotherapy, that you also include bathing, herbs, or nutraceutical therapies to help reduce inflammation in addition to beginning a desensitization protocol. Those are some allergy-free goats there. (laughs) (laughs) So spraying your dog down as soon as he comes in, well, before he comes in the house. I wouldn't have thought of that. That's a good idea, though. Yeah. Well, thank you, Zoe. That was really informative and uh, I'm sure helpful for a lot of people. Um, I'll have to consider that... uh, with our dog, she has some problems uh, coming in and out of the season. It's not huge ones, but small ones. Mm-hmm. So, well, um, <clears throat> I uh, I don't have a recipe again for today. I will get my act to get together in that regard soon. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so, unless you guys have anything off the top of your head, <laughs> not to put you on the spot. <laughs> Don't be afraid fat. of Zika. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's our recipe for today is fat. Eat fat. <laughs> um, so, but <clears throat> I think it's a, it's a good time to wrap up. Uh, that was our, uh, our show for today. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in and for our chat participants. Um, be sure to listen to the, uh, the SOT Radio Show on Sunday. At noon Eastern time, if you go to radio.sot.net on Sunday, you'll see the uh, the airtime in your local time zone there, wherever you might be. Um, and uh, thanks again. We will be back uh, next week with a new topic. Have a nice weekend, everybody. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, everybody.